From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Basically, you can think of the circuits in the brain in ways that are really analogous to the way we think about muscles. And so if you're not using circuits very often, they will atrophy, just like a muscle will atrophy. Hello, welcome to the Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Dr. Richie Davidson. He's the founder and director of the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, he's done groundbreaking, remarkable work studying not just emotion and the brain, but, but meditation and attention and the brain. He's been a pioneer in the studies that have brought in master meditators, regular level meditators, and tried to understand where and when and how their brains differ and what there actually is to this kind of attentional training. Um, and his work has been renowned. He was named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World. He's a friend and the confidant of the Dalai Lama, which we talk about in, in, in this. He's a co-author of a great book called Altered Traits, uh, which I think is the single best book certainly that I've read on the actual science of meditation, what we know about it, what we know it does, what we don't know that it does, how to actually study it. Uh, so this is a conversation about all of that. It's a conversation about what we can train our minds to do. It's also a conversation about what our minds are being trained to do. I love his idea here, which comes up very early in the conversation of stimulus-driven attention. And, and towards the end, we talk about something that I think is important, which is not severing these practices from the ethical structures in which they emerged. Um, I think there is something to the way we are trying to decontextualize meditation as simply a, a life hack, a productivity tool that is deeply impoverishing of it and impoverishing of us. Um, or maybe to put it more in these terms, I think one part about optimizing your life is is thinking ethically um, and making sure that if you are using tools that are also meant to let you see the world more clearly and its injustices more clearly, that you haven't lost that part of those tools in an effort to just make yourself a better worker or a little bit less stressed out or whatever it might be. Um, as always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Richie Davidson. Richie Davidson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to begin with a Herbert Simon quote you have in the book. What information consumes is attention. A wealth of information means a poverty of attention. So we have more information than ever. So is our attention more impoverished than ever? Uh, actually, there is scientific evidence to suggest that our attention is more impoverished than ever because our attention is pulled by more information than we've ever had before in human history, which is competing for our attention. And uh, uh, we think of this as stimulus-driven attention. It's where attention is captured by stuff around us rather than us 
uh, more intentionally directing our attention. So you can think of it, our attention is like a sailboat that may be without a rudder that is on a turbulent ocean being pushed and pulled by the uh, uh, units of uh, information that are blowing in the wind. Uh, that's that's what our attention is like. I, I like that a lot. Okay, stimulus-driven attention. That is a, a term for a concept I've needed a term for. What are the other... What are the other typologies of attention? Well, uh, the uh, the contrast to stimulus-driven attention is self-directed attention or voluntary attention. Uh, and so right now, if I asked you to please uh, attend to the sensations in your right foot without moving anything, just simply direct your attention to your right foot within some range most people can uh, bring uh, that part of the body into more uh, a refined awareness and begin to notice whatever sensations might be present. Uh, that's an example of voluntarily directed attention. Um, we also can choose right now to attend to something external. You can uh, choose to attend, for example, to whatever sounds you may hear uh, in your environment or uh, uh, notice a particular sight. Uh, and so when we direct our attention in that way, we're using very different brain circuits than when, when our attention is captured. So that idea that there are different brain circuits is interesting. Can you, over time, become more that's what I'm looking for, more vulnerable to stimulus-driven attention and less able to direct your own attention? We believe that that, that is indeed possible. Uh, basically, you can think of these circuits in the brain in ways that are really analogous to the way we think about muscles. And so if you're not using circuits very often, they will atrophy, just like a muscle will atrophy. Uh, and so if we are more in the mode of having our attention captured by information around us, this notion of stimulus-driven attention, uh, we're going to have the voluntary component of attention atrophy. Those brain circuits will literally begin to change and to lose their strength. So I want to talk about this idea of voluntary because I, I think it's interesting. So thinking about this stimulus-driven attention, I think about the way I'll click into email and then move over to Twitter and then back to email and then back to my chat program. And in some ways, I'm directing that attention, but it feels very much like I'm being pulled around by by stimulus. And this kind of constant digital multitasking is more common now. You quote researchers in the book saying multitaskers are, quote, suckers for irrelevancy. What, what does that mean? Well, uh, what it means is that uh, when a salient stimulus appears in our awareness. Uh, and if we're in this mode of stimulus-driven attention, our attention will be captured. Uh, and so in the example you gave where you're switching among email and Twitter and whatever other social media there might be, if you get a notification, that's a piece of information that will capture your attention and lead to some shift in, in your attention and your behavior that has led to a kind of attentional deficit uh, that I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we all suffer from. And I would uh, invite the consideration that 
the national attention deficit far exceeds our national fiscal deficit at this point in time. Uh, and there's very good evidence for that. I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to make a stock and flow joke, but I don't think anybody will actually find that funny. Um, let me now move back a little bit into your story. You began studying meditation not as a scientist, but actually as a, as a seeker, as somebody going in, into the East at a time when that was not as common and trying to to access a tradition that was not as popular here. What led to that? What what led to that quest? What led to it is my fortuitous meeting with individuals who had taken that journey a little bit before me. And uh, I was really struck by their demeanor, by the quality of their being. They were very warm-hearted people. Uh, they were generous. They were... Uh, loving. They were the kind of people I really wanted to hang around, and they weren't my professors at Harvard. And so I uh, was very attracted to these people and wanted to know what their secret sauce was. And uh, that's really what led to this quest. Tell me what what it was like. I mean, the the people you met there, the people you studied under. What did you What did you see? Well, I saw what uh, I glimpsed as the uh, kind of further reaches of, of human flourishing, of human possibility. These were individuals that struck me as ones being very resilient. They were people that had been subjected to a lot of adversity in their lives, and yet they uh, seemed to have very high levels of well-being. Uh, they seemed to be pretty unperturbable. Uh, they were very um, kind uh, sorts of people. Uh, and they also had a certain quality of presence where, and that this relates to our earlier conversation about attention. Uh, when you were with them, you felt that they were giving you their total undivided attention. They were fully present. Uh, and there's something deeply caring about uh, being fully attentive with another human being in an encounter. And so that was really very important for me. And uh, uh, when I first went to India, that was after two years of graduate school in, in psychology and neuroscience. And uh, I was quite convinced that this kind of path uh, and, and these uh, methods were ones that were relevant to understanding um, the mind and understanding human behavior. Can I back you up one second? That 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 quote about that comment about being fully present. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that quality what what separates it? There's a a line I love and I'm sorry cuz I'm not remembering where it's from right now, but that for most people being truly listened to is so rare that it's an indistinguishable act from love. And I think about a lot of the people who I've not met that many teachers in the space. But something I've always been very struck by is the quality of their listening and that there's another beat or two when you say something to them before they respond. They're not waiting. They're actually they're actually listening. Mm -hmm. um, and then it takes a little bit longer to respond because there's processing and, and then actually thinking about how to respond. I don't have enough experience to know if that is generalizable, but I'm, I'm curious to hear you describe that quality of being present? What is it like? What does it feel like to be in its presence? Well, I, I love the quote. I'd love to know where it comes from that you mentioned, because I do think that uh, being fully present in that way is uh, a kind of, uh, of love. 
Uh, and one of the um, people who stand out for me in this space is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, I've known him for um, more than 25 years, and uh, I've been around him a lot during that time. And he is someone who is so fully present when you are with him. And it is a kind of love. And, and it, you feel a very, very deep sense of being cared for and a very deep sense of security uh, because you know that uh, uh, you are really um, being listened to in the, in the most um, fundamental, deepest sort of way. And so, you know, one of the things this suggests to me, William James, who is America's first great psychologist, wrote a two-volume tome in 1890 called The Principles of Psychology, and he has a whole chapter on attention in that two-volume tome. And one of the things he says in that chapter, he talks about an education of attention. Uh, and he said that uh, if there were to be an education of attention. He said it would be the education par excellence. And he talked about attention being at the very root of judgment, character, and will. Uh, and he went on to say in this passage that it is, and this is a quote, he said, it is easier to define this ideal than to give practical considerations for bringing it about. Uh, and so William James didn't have contact with these contemplative traditions. But I think if he did, he would have instantaneously seen that if nothing else, uh, they, they offered a kind of technology for educating attention. This is such an interesting way to frame it. So the idea here is that there is so much we do to increase and to train our knowledge, our critical thinking, our bodies for that matter. I mean, we have PE in school. Um, you know, we have sports. And there's nothing we do that is specifically about training and developing our attention. And the idea is that these traditions have an approach that could form the basis for that. A absolutely. And I would go even further to say that um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that attention is the building block of all other forms of learning. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot to, to convince people that if one is not actually attending to information around them, uh, it will impair our ability to learn. Uh, and so attention is really uh, absolutely fundamental to all other forms of learning. And the fact that we don't formally teach this to our children is, is just unconscionable. I mean, I, I think about this a lot. I just had a child, actually. And one of the things that I worry about um, in my new, my new realm of worrying about more things than I did before is the world he'll grow up in. Such a tremendous experiment is being run on people's attention spans. Such a tremendous experiment is being run on how we process the world and what we look at. And it's being run from a very early age with no good data on what that does to people that it seems much more urgent to figure out a way to help him and, and, and other children have an attention that can keep them separate, that can keep them intentional in a world that uh, is very, to, to go back to the term you used at the beginning, very stimulus-driven. And increasingly, given the ubiquity of screens and given the sophistication of the techniques used on those screens, 
um, that reaches into more parts of our existence from an earlier age than it than it ever could have before. Yes, I, I completely agree with you and very strongly. Uh, and in fact, there are really hard-nosed scientific data that show if you take a group of teenagers today and test them on objective measures of attention, and these are measures that um, behaviorally measure the uh, child's capacity to voluntarily focus attention. And if you compare uh, children today to age and gender-matched children 30 years ago on the identical measures, 30 years ago before the advent of digital devices, um, what we see is that kids today, this is in the United States, are more attentionally impaired than kids were 30 years ago on literally identical measures, age and gender matched, um, very carefully uh, done studies. And so these um, findings are an empirical confirmation uh, of, uh, I think, the intuition that you're expressing. Of course, from the data that I just described, we don't know definitively what the cause of those differences between the cohort today and the cohort 30 years ago is, but certainly I think it's a reasonable conjecture that uh, the advent of digital devices has something to do with the problems that we see today. Is there an income cut on that data? Here's why I ask. Um, I, I've begun to worry about, I don't like this term, attentional inequality. Uh, so something we've begun to see is that the digital divide is not proving what we thought it was going to be. That people thought that what was going to happen was rich kids were going to have access to all these screens and you know computer programs and VR and whatever it might be, and and poor kids wouldn't. And that is you know only a couple decades into this, it's already beginning to flip. And the children of wealthier people, I'm I'm in the Bay Area, and the children of a lot of tech executives go to these private schools where there are no screens, where they get a lot of time away from the very things their parents are making every day. Whereas children of poor parents, um. Their parents aren't around as much. There are more screens. They're often left with the the television or, you know, with um, you know, something to some screen to play with because their parents are at work. And so the possibility that among the many, many kinds of inequality that we allow to flourish in our society, that one is going to be that we invented all these consumer electronics and then we keep kids who their parents have the resources to keep them away from them are able to better develop their own intentional attention resources than the kids who aren't. Um, seems like a very cruel way for all this to play out, but but a very plausible one. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting and important insight. I, I certainly share that concern. Um, you know, another element to this whole thing that we haven't talked about uh, uh, that's fundamentally related to our capacity to voluntarily deploy attention is how our attention gets hijacked not just by um, our digital devices, but by other kinds of media. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly about um, media on television and political uh, propaganda, if you will. And I think that uh, in, in our society today, we're seeing the pernicious uh, effect of that, uh, in, in my view. Uh, and um, when our attention gets hijacked, our emotions can also get hijacked. And there are some sectors in our culture that have become very adept at um, activating fear, 
and uh, uh, that gets activated through the media. And fear contracts awareness, quite literally, and there's very good evidence for this. Uh, and so it makes people more attentionally restricted. Um, and uh, that has all kinds of serious consequences, secondary consequences. Uh, and so uh, our inability to regulate our attention extends in many, many sectors and in many areas, uh, including this area, which I think is one that is tearing apart our uh, the fabric of, of our democracy. So as you may or may not know, I'm primarily a political journalist. And so the thing I'll, I'll say is I think it is more direct than you even give it credit for. It's not that hijacking attention can hijack emotion. It's that the way we hijack attention is by hijacking emotion. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. What is happening there? And, you know, we try to be responsible about it at, at, at my organization, but I'd say, you know, certainly we overhype things sometimes. And I think a lot of our competitors do it a lot more. But do you want to get people to read a story that you think is important or you just want them to read a story even if you don't really think it's important? And what you end up doing is amping up the outrage, um, particularly in the headline, but not only, because in the cacophony of information that is on social media, that is the way people share, that is the way people find your stories now, to stand out, you need to grab people's attention more than others are doing it. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the direct route to their attention is their emotion. Yes. And one of the things that I would uh, um, suggest is that it's, it's possible to capture attention in, uh, in more benign ways. Uh, um, love can capture attention also. And um, we just uh, uh, have not figured out how to do that on, at scale. Certainly not in politics. <laughs> That's certainly true. I mean, I do think there are other ways to get people's attention. You can, I think about this as often very related to identity, that the way in which we're grabbing onto people's emotions has to do with their political identities. And those political identities can be related to the people or policies we hate and fear. They're also related to the kinds of people we think we are, mm -hmm. right? And that can be compassionate people, that can be thoughtful, that can be willing to hear out the other side. A lot of us feel deeply that we are fair-minded people, curious people. And so... I am not against the use of outrage because I think a lot of things in our society are outrageous. I am against it as a one-dimensional way that we pitch politics mm -hmm. um, because people's politics are not, they're not just about outrage. They're also about an idealistic vision of a better society. They're also about common bonds. I mean, the, I, I often think we're not creative enough that we only, we only know how to play one key on the piano or not. I shouldn't say we, I think a lot of players in this space only know how to play one key on the piano. Yes. And, and I think one uh, element of the kind of work that we do that speaks to this um, one issue that you mentioned is this. When I um, reflect back on the famous speech that Martin Luther King gave in the 1960s, the title of that speech was not, I Have a Nightmare. Uh, it, was, uh, it was holding out a vision for a different way of being a more positive future. And I think that this is something so important. Uh, and, and really, it doesn't take much to engage in certain kinds of mental exercises that can completely shift our mode of being. It, it doesn't take much. One of the things that I often say is that when human beings evolved on this planet, we didn't all start brushing our teeth. No one was brushing their teeth initially. 
Uh, and yet, virtually every human being on the planet now brushes their teeth. It's a kind of personal physical hygiene that we recognize is helpful for our health. And yet, I think if most people spend just a few moments reflecting on this, I think most people would agree that their minds and their brains are perhaps even more important than their teeth. And if we spent even a short amount of time each day nurturing virtuous qualities of our mind in the same way that we brush our teeth, this world would be different. So that's a good bridge back to meditation. It's also a good, hopefully, advertisement for the podcast, but a good bridge back to meditation. Um, you call meditation in the book a catch-all term. What is it? What is it catching? What is being flattened when people refer to it as a singular? Well, what's being flattened is that, uh, you know, it I often say meditation is like sports, and if we, you know, many lay people have a singular notion of what meditation might mean, but it would be like thinking that you can uh, capture all of sports in one single image. You just can't. There are hundreds of different kinds of meditation practices, just like there are hundreds of different kinds of sports, and they do different things to the brain. Can you give me some examples of different ones that have different effects on the brain? Uh, so there are certain forms of meditation that are the ones that are the most widely known and uh, scientifically investigated that uh, can be subsumed under the term, quote, mindfulness practices. Uh, they are practices which, in one way or another, nurture our capacity for attention, nurture our capacity to be fully present. And those kinds of practices have one set of consequences for the brain. There are other practices that we call um, more constructive practices where you actually are um, nurturing certain emotional qualities intentionally. Uh, and there are practices uh, that nurture uh, qualities like loving kindness, which is the wish for another person to be happy, and also compassion, which is the wish to relieve suffering in another. And these are specific mental exercises uh, that have um, been also studied scientifically, not quite as extensively as mindfulness practices, but they impact completely different brain circuits. Um, and yet they're both meditation practices. They're both very commonly practiced in the uh, Asian contemplative traditions from which they emerged. And there are also many, many other kinds of practices as well. Um, and you can take each of those categories that I've mentioned and break them down into many subcategories. Uh, and those subcategories also have somewhat different neural correlates. So can I ask you to actually drive into a couple more of the, the sure. distinctions? Because I think you just mentioned the two. If people know a bit about meditation, they probably know mindfulness and, and loving kindness, right? But for instance, you talk in the book about the difference between single-pointedness meditations and open-awareness meditations. Mm -hmm. And it never even occurred to me that those kinds of meditations, which I know a little bit about, would have done different things to the brain. So can, can you talk a little bit more about some of the different practices that people may not be as familiar with? Yes. Yeah, so within mindfulness practices, there are practices which really refine concentration. Uh, and there are practices that are what we consider to be focused awareness practices. They could be uh, focusing awareness on uh, a specific part of the body uh, or a specific quality like uh, 
Uh, for example, paying attention to the temperature of the air as it goes into and, ex, um, and from your nostrils with each inhalation and exhalation. And if you pay very careful attention, you'll notice that uh, there's a temperature difference um, in the air that goes in and out. And so by focusing attention in that way, you really are concentrating and uh, focusing on one specific point, typically at the very tip of the nostril. Um, that's very different than uh, uh, what we call open awareness practice, uh, which is broadening the attentional focus, where you're not focusing on anything in particular. You're not fixing on anything in particular. You are not getting lost, but being present to whatever might arise. Uh, and this turns out to strengthen other kinds of circuits in the brain um, that have a lot to do with what we can call meta-awareness. Meta-awareness is knowing what the mind is doing. Uh, that may sound like a a kind of oxymoron or just a crazy way to speak. But in fact, a lot of the time, we don't know what our minds are doing. I often use the example in large audiences, people raise their hands, agreeing that this has happened to them where they people might be reading a book uh, and reading each word on a page, and they may read one page and then another page. And after a couple of pages, they, have, they realize they have no friggin' idea what they've just read. Um, their mind is completely somewhere else. And, and at that moment of re recognizing that, that's a moment of meta-awareness where you can bring the mind back. But um, when you cultivate open awareness where you are monitoring lots of different things in the mind, uh, if you will, um, without fixating on any one thing in particular, it turns out that this kind of practice is particularly helpful in strengthening this quality of meta-awareness. And when you think about it, meta-awareness is, is absolutely essential for correcting mistakes. Uh, well, if you're engaged in a difficult task where you're, you occasionally will make mistakes, there are times when we make mistakes and we're not aware that we've made a mistake. I mean, how many times are we typing and we make a typo and we're not aware that we've made the mistake? But if, in, and, and by definition, if we're not aware that we've made the mistake, we can't correct it. Uh, and so the moment we're aware of it is a moment of meta-awareness. And that is, it turns out that there's a circuit in the brain um, that we've learned a lot about over the last 10 years uh, that is a circuit for monitoring what the rest of the mind and the brain is doing. Um, and so these types of meditation do very different things. And it's not that one is better than the other. And that's something really important uh, to promote optimal human flourishing. We believe that many of these kinds of practices done in balance are really helpful. So is this the kind of thing where just like people go to the gym and they have legs day and they have chest day and they have arms day, <laughs> there should be loving kindness day and, and open awareness day and single pointedness day? Or should people focus in on one if they want to see any effect? Well, that's a great question. And um, the most honest answer to that question is that we do not know, from, from at least from a scientific perspective. My own intuition for for being around this kind of area for quite a long time, is that the answer likely varies with different kinds of people. Uh, and so some people may really benefit from strengthening 
one or another of these kind of qualities. Their concentration may be way off and they may really need to do some basic concentration kinds of practices. For other people, you know, they can concentrate pretty well, but they really don't have great meta-awareness. Uh, for other people, they're kind of stale and they need to really nurture their heart. Um, so, uh, uh, and there are many, uh, there are many other practices that we haven't mentioned that we think are also really critical for well-being. So one of them is an area that we call insight. Um, and it's really about self-knowledge and insight into uh, this thing that we all have, which is a narrative about ourselves that we all carry around. Um, you know, at the very extreme, there are people who have a lot of negative self-beliefs, and they actually hold those beliefs to be a true description of who they are. And of course, that's a prescription for depression. And in fact, there's a lot of research that indicates that folks who become significantly clinically depressed um, have these kinds of, of negative self-beliefs, and they hold these beliefs to be a, a true description of who they are. There are specific practices in the contemplative traditions uh, that are called analytic meditation. In fact, the Dalai Lama primarily does analytic meditation, and there's virtually no scientific research uh, that has been done on analytic meditation. And in analytic meditation, we ask ourselves um, uh, questions like, where is the self? What is the self made of? Uh, is there a location of the self? Is there a feeling to the self? Is there a color? Um, is there a spatial extent of the self? Uh, and we continuously ask ourselves these questions. Um, and uh, this gives us real insight into what fundamentally we can experience as the insubstantiality of the self. Um, and the fact that the, there, we all do carry around this narrative, but what the narrative actually is, is a bunch of thoughts. Uh, and it's not so much about changing the narrative, it's about changing our relationship to the narrative. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So you've had the opportunity, I think more so than probably anyone else alive, to study these truly master meditators in scientifically rigorous settings. So what have you found? What is what what looks different about people who have been in one or more of these traditions for thousands or tens of thousands of hours from those of us who are just refreshing Facebook? <laughs> well, I'll give you, you know, a, a, a few examples um, of specific uh, areas of behavior. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong student of emotion. That's really the 
my main scientific area that I was originally trained in. And one of the great opportunities for me has been to be around these kind of people and uh, simply to observe the quality of their emotions. Um, and so one thing that's important to note at the outset is that there is some stereotype in the media around meditation that meditation may produce people who are like emotional zombies. And I could tell you from my experience being around these people who've had tens of thousands of hours of experience that it's quite the opposite. Um, you know, if anything, they're much more emotionally alive than other people that I know. And, you know, one of the figures who I've, you know, talked about publicly quite a lot is the Dalai Lama. Um, uh, and uh, uh, he has a greater dynamic range of his emotion than any other human being I've ever met. And what I mean by that is that you can be in a situation with him and he can hear a story that is a tragedy, like Tibetans being tortured in a Chinese prison or self-immolating. Um, and I've seen this personally. And he just starts crying, uh, just spontaneously, tears. Uh, and then in the next moment, he can notice something funny that someone did, and he'll burst out laughing. Uh, and it's not inappropriate. He is responding in a context-appropriate way. And it's um, many people refer to this as childlike because one of the things we see, particularly in, in very young children, is this extraordinary capacity to go from crying to laughing and laughing to crying just, you know, with the snap of a finger. That's something that most adults have lost. The Dalai Lama has it. And so one of these qualities is this quality of resilience, being able to return back to baseline virtually instantaneously, having strong emotion, but not holding on to it. Um, it just ex it gets expressed and then boom, you're right back down to baseline. Uh, and one area where this has extraordinary practical import is in the area of pain. And this is something that we and other scientists have intensively studied very, very rigorously. There is a, a large corpus of neuroscientific research on pain. And so we know a lot about the networks in the brain that respond to, uh, to real painful kinds of stimuli which provides a foundation for this work. So in one experiment, just to give an example of this, we, we use heat in the laboratory to induce pain and we can deliver heat very, very safely. And it's, it's real heat, so it's extremely realistic. You feel your skin is burning, but we can deliver it very safely and completely ethically. Here's the experiment. We bring a person in, we give them uh, one experience of this intensely painful um, kind of heat so that they know that we're what we're talking about. And then they go into the experiment and we have them in the, in the MRI scanner. So we're monitoring their brain. And we tell them that when they hear a tone, just like a beep, um, they know the certain tone of a certain pitch that they're going to get a painful stimulus in 10 seconds. So the pain will be turned on in 10 seconds, but all they heard is just the tone. When you bring an average person off the street and put them in the scanner and do this experiment, the moment the tone comes on, the matrix in the brain, the circuits in the brain that respond to pain are immediately activated. It's as if they're getting the painful stimulus when the tone is delivered. And yet the only thing that's happened is that a tone has occurred. Then when the pain 
actually gets delivered. They continue to show activation in these regions. And then we have a period after the pain that's a recovery period. In this case, it's a 10-second period during which we can observe how quickly these circuits that are activated come back down to baseline. And again, if we take the average person off the street, their recovery is very, very slow. And in fact, in many people, it doesn't fully recover after these 10 seconds. Uh, It's as if they're perseverating and ruminating about the pain. Uh, And so, and then we take a long-term meditator and do the same thing with them. And what happens is when we present the tone, nothing happens. The only thing that responds is the areas in the brain that respond to sound. But none of the pain matrix goes on, amazingly. Then when when the painful stimulus occurs, they actually show in certain parts of the pain matrix, they actually show an even greater response, particularly to the sensory areas of the brain that are responding to the pain. And then when the painful stimulus goes off, they immediately return back down to baseline. Uh, and so uh, in, in some sense, the average person is getting a triple dose of pain, uh, whereas the long-term meditator is simply responding when the painful stimulus is being delivered. They respond and they respond robustly. So it's not as if their response is blunted, but um, their ratings of distress are greatly diminished because these ratings of distress largely are driven by the anticipation and the recovery periods. So this reminds me of the old Mark Twain quote, most of the worst things that ever happened to me never happened to me. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, there's a whole really interesting story around this, uh, which I'll say very briefly. Uh, we humans have this chunk of real estate in the front of our brains that we call the prefrontal cortex. This part of the brain is larger in relation to the rest of the brain mass in humans than it is in any other species. And this part of the brain is what is responsible for us being able to do what we call mental time travel. That is to anticipate the future and to reflect on the past. Now, obviously, this confers great advantages to us, um, but it also is what gets us into trouble. There's a very famous neurobiologist at Stanford, a good friend of mine named Robert Sapolsky. And Robert wrote- Past guest on the show. Okay, great. Well, he's one of my dear friends and uh, a scientist I deeply respect. Um, Robert wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Uh, And the reason why zebras don't get ulcers in a nutshell is because they have very puny prefrontal cortices. Um, They can't- Uh, anticipate the future and ruminate about the past. Uh, And humans have uh, a greater capacity to do this than anyone else on the planet. Uh, And it's because of this that we uh, get ourselves into this kind of trouble. So I guess the Robert Sapolsky take on this, because I think one thing you might say then is, well, if we develop that, isn't it a good idea to have it? But but I think the Sapolsky take would be that modernity has supercharged our ability to use that part of our brains. We're sitting around worrying about 30-year mortgages and activating stress designed to run away from a lion. And as such, you actually, in a way, meditation in this conception of it, and this is something Robert Wright argues, meditation in this conception of it is an effort to train our brains into a state that is more appropriate for the world we actually live in, as opposed to 
the as opposed to living within the contradictions between them and the world as it has evolved beyond right. what we evolved to live in. Absolutely, the world of our evolutionary past. I think that's that's a reasonable way to frame it. Um, you know, we can we can harness the extraordinary capacity of our brain. Clearly, the capacity to anticipate the future and plan is is absolutely essential. Um, uh, uh, and and to reflect on the past, but we can again. This goes back to our discussion of uh, stimulus-driven attention and voluntary attention. We can have um, voluntary deployment of these capacities that are afforded by the prefrontal cortex, rather than being hijacked by them. And this is really the difference. So there is a school of thought, particularly out here in the Bay Area, and right now that says. Well, if what you want to do is quiet down some of that prefrontal cortex, quiet down some of that default mode network, rather than spending 10,000 hours you don't have meditating, why don't you take a couple heroic doses of LSD and um, you know, and then maybe microdose from there on out and have a chemical boost into this slightly more open, slightly less egotistical dimension? How do you think about the intersection of psychedelics or, frankly, any other drug into this? Well, you know, it's a complicated question. Uh, I am strongly uh, in favor of uh, continuing research on psychedelics, particularly uh, as they may pertain to treating um, serious mental disorders or um, really where they first emerged as being potentially therapeutically useful is working with uh, patients who are terminally ill. Uh, and who are really in their last uh, several months of life and facing uh, kind of existential anxiety. Uh, and, and data uh, show that psychedelics may be helpful uh, in those cases. Short of that, uh, I, I don't think psychedelics are going to be a shortcut to awakening uh, at all. One of the things that um, is so important, it really is captured by the title of the book that I wrote with Dan Goldman, Altered Traits, which is, of course, a play on altered states. We are really interested in meditation, not for the buzz that we get when we sit on the cushion, but it's how these practices uh, infiltrate every nook and cranny of our lives. Uh, and uh, there's not a lot of good evidence that taking a, a psychedelic, even if taking you know several doses of a psychedelic, is going to lead to these kind of really enduring changes uh, that are trait-like changes. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, changing the brain in this way requires what we call procedural learning. Procedural learning is skill-based learning. It's habit learning. It's the kind of learning that we engage in to learn how to play a musical instrument or to learn how to play sports. You know, we so far haven't found drugs that will allow us to go from, you know, being um, a, a complete um, novice violin player to being a virtuoso, and I doubt that there will ever be, and similarly with sports, and I think similarly with awakening. It's gonna, it requires um, that we put in our time and actually train our mind and our brain. What is the amount of time you actually need to begin to dip into an altered trait? Because I think a lot of people have the experience of, including me at times, of you decide you're going to start meditating, and you do for 
a couple weeks or a couple months or maybe, I mean, hopefully, fingers crossed, a year. But then, like for me right now, I just had a, a baby, and I would say that has not been amazing for my meditation <laughs> practice. <laughs> um, and then the the benefits begin to, to to drain out. Or I went on a on, on a silent retreat, and I felt very different for a while. And then over time, not that different. So, what is what is the minimum effective dose to begin seeing some of these trait changes as opposed to just occasional state changes? Yeah, well, those are great questions. And let me say that. Um, uh, you know, I've got two kids. They're both um, uh, young adults now. But when my kids were your, um, the, the age of your kids, my me daily meditation practice also fell apart. Um, and uh, you know, I, I feel better knowing that, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just true confessions, and it's um, you know, it's just the way it is. And um, I, I just think you know, there, there are times in life when it's really hard. Uh, and, um, and we do the best we can. But here's the kind of advice that we give people now. Uh, and it's the kind of advice that really comes both from the scientific work as well as from practice. And what we ask people to do is to reflect uh, on their own practice and come up with a time, uh, a daily amount of practice that they feel they can really do and make a, an unswerving commitment to do and do it every single day for 30 days, even if it's one minute a day. And we start at one minute. You know, how much time do we spend brushing our teeth a day? You know, it's maybe two, three, four minutes, whatever it might be. And what we just ask a person to choose for her or himself uh, and then make a unswerving commitment to do that every single day for 30 days. And then check in with yourself and um, see how you're doing. And if possible, uh, if you're finding benefit, you can increase it and just go really gradually. And then if you miss a day after that, don't beat yourself up for it. Just keep going. You know, one of the difficulties has been creating unrealistic expectations. I mean, it's really hard to establish a new habit. It's really hard. And um, I think that in many cases with many programs out there, there are unrealistic expectations. And so rather than setting a person up for what is almost invariably failure, let's try to set a person up for success. And the evidence suggests that even, you know, a really short amount of practice is enough to make a change on objective measures. Now, it's not to say it's going to become a trait. Um, it, it's simply to say that it's producing a, 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 an objective change. Uh, in order to become a trait, we need to do this on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, there are different kinds of outcomes that will emerge as traits with different lengths of practice. And we found that. It, in, uh, for example, with loving kindness kinds of practice or compassion practice, you can get trade effects on measures of, uh, of certain measures of generosity uh, much more quickly than you can get with attention effects with mindfulness practices, which take longer to produce. How quickly are we talking about? Um, you can get uh, uh, pretty enduring effects um, in, you know, in two weeks of practice where you're practicing, uh, um, you know, 20 to 30 minutes a day uh, on and you can get changes in the brain. Uh, now, again, if you stop meditating after that, they're going to go away. Uh, and so we're not talking here ever about effects that will endure 
uh, once you stop practicing. And it's kind of like physical exercise. We all know, you know, you can work out and be an, an amazing athlete for a couple of years. And then if you completely stop exercising, it's going to eventually wear off. Um, now, it may be that once you've reached a super um, uh, expertise level of practice, uh, if you stop meditating, there are certain qualities which uh, are relatively permanently shifted and will endure. That we don't know. Uh, that's just conjecture. When you, so you say that you can begin to have an effect on the generosity and loving kindness measures within a couple of weeks, how about the attentional measures? You know, they typically take uh, somewhat more time, particularly uh, measures uh, that uh, I, I talked before about um, coming back down to baseline more quickly. Uh, we can think of resilience, literally, we can define resilience as the rapidity with which you recover from adversity. Um, that takes longer. And in our work, it's not until you've meditated for roughly 1,500 to 2,000 hours um, that you begin to see changes on those kinds of measures. I was talking to a friend recently who was telling me about a debate he'd had with someone about, is it more important to be on a cushion for 20 minutes a day regularly or to try to do a silent retreat for 10 days once a year? Is it more important to get that deep immersion or that regularity? Um, if you had to choose or if you at least had to distinguish the, the effects of the two, how are, they, how are they different? Well, we've actually studied that. Um, we've published data on it. So uh, if you take two people who have the same amount of lifetime practice, but one person um, has that practice more in retreat, and another person has never gone on retreat and just done it through daily practice, uh, it turns out that the retreat practice is more beneficial in most cases. Uh, and so we found that on a number of different measures. And so this is an advertisement for, for doing retreat practice. But I would say that um, ideally, it you know, we, we don't want to um, frame it as an either or, um, uh, uh, and ideally we want to do some daily practice and also, uh, enjoy some time for retreat. One thing I wonder about having this conversation is there is certainly within the American, uh, application of these traditions, a real focus on optimization. Can I develop my concentration, my generosity? Can I lower my stress? Can I become more creative? There's a deep spiritual dimension to them, too. I mean, you used the word awakening earlier. Is something being impoverished in the way that we are thinking about meditation and in particular mindfulness in, in the popular American conversation and the, the conversation driven by things like headspace and calm? Um, are, we, are we losing something here? I, I think we are losing something, and I think that there is some danger uh, uh, in this. And there are a couple of things that are really important to say here. One is earlier I talked about the importance of uh, engaging in several different kinds of practice in order to promote uh, flourishing. Uh, and so if you sort of exclusively train mindfulness or exclusively train one thing to the neglect of other dimensions of well-being, uh, it can lead to, we think, some imbalance and, and perhaps not be optimal uh, for promoting flourishing. And, um, and so to the extent that there are 
apps out there or programs which primarily focus on just one of these dimensions of well-being, uh, that will inherently be imbalanced. The second issue is that um, these practices have largely, in the kinds of uh, instances you described, Ezra, largely um, stripped from their uh, from their context and and. Um, uh, of course, you know, there are areas, sectors in our society where we need to be careful about not um, tainting uh, what we're doing with, quote, religion. But um, there are spiritual aspects, or you can even think of them as ethical aspects to these practices, which are really, really important. So these traditions have evolved within an ethical framework. And to the extent that that ethical framework is not being carried uh, into the teaching of these practices, they are indeed um, really missing something critical. Uh, and one of, for example, one of these universal ethical principles is a principle of non-harm. So, you know, the idea that we may be able to use, quote, mindfulness techniques to help people become better sharpshooters uh, who may, you know, improve their killing efficiency is just fundamentally inconsistent with um, the ethical framework in which these practices evolved. Yeah, I mean, you you discussed earlier the way in which people might expect that master meditators would be cold and diffident and they're actually joyous and warm-hearted. That might be the meditation, but it might also be that the the larger ethical framework and philosophy and practices, because there were there are ethical practices within particularly the Buddhist tradition. Um, if you divorce the mindfulness training from that, um, you might lose the context that leads that training to take you towards a kind of joyousness and an openness and a, and a warm heartedness. Yeah, you're you're a great scientist, Ezra. This is so important, and in fact, this is an issue that we are um, actively taking on as a scientific issue in our center, um, which is in the contemplative traditions. The the kind of ethical framework that we're talking about has been called the view. Um, and in the in the classical traditions, uh, what we often talk about are three elements of practice. There's the view, meditation, and conduct. Um, and all three are said to be important. Um, but it may well be that um, the view, uh, particularly if you combine the view with conduct, may outweigh the benefits of the actual practice. And so one of the things that has never been tested is if you take a person and you steep them in the view, um, uh, but ha not have them engage in any meditation practice, uh, to what extent does that lead them to become warm-hearted and generous? The answer is we don't know. It's never been tested before. Uh, and so this is something really important. One of the things that has always appealed to me about these practices is that the idea that if you're able to cultivate this quality of attention and this quality of compassion, that it will help you see the world and the violence in the world more clearly. And this is not a comment that everybody's going to love, but something I think about often within religious traditions is you show me how within your tradition you treat the poor and you treat animals. And then I'll think about what your tradition actually says. And there's something about the way in which, um, particularly the, the Buddhist, although not only the Buddhist tradition, 
has been very concerned with suffering that the um that the clarity of meditation has brought a clarity to the idea that not only can you suffer but others can suffer and you need to take that just as seriously has given it a different kind of appeal to me than the idea that it's simply a stress response mechanism or a um a, a way to a way to make yourself better at your job and i don't know i i'm in i'm in the bay area and there's a lot of meditation out here and a lot of it seems very divorced from some of the insights that that meditation initially brought um, the people who uh, folks now claim to follow in a way that in a way that seems not just impoverished in the tradition but actually a little bit of missing the point. Well, you know, I share your concern, and uh, uh, you know, these are issues that are deeply important to me. You know, I'm uh, a vegetarian for these reasons, uh, not for health reasons. And, uh, I'm deeply moved by these, by these concerns. Um, I think they're super important. You've talked about awakening and, and when you read in, in these traditions, the, what this is all pointing towards is enlightenment. And I'm curious if you've met anyone or seen anything that gives you a definition of enlightenment or a belief that these practices actually can lead real people to something that you would describe as that condition. You know, I, I have, I'm so far away from that personally <laughs> that it's very difficult <laughs> for me to put my arms around it. But I have, you know, I have had the honor of being around people like the Dalai Lama who, you know, I think um, if there's there, there's someone on this planet who's enlightened. I certainly think he would be um, my top choice. And you know, there are qualities which are quite extraordinary that um, uh, are I, I just am so moved by. Uh, and and the stories are endless. I mean, I can share you know uh, a few of them just to give a feel for it. But um, please do. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm a scientist who's been, um, who's had the benefit of financial support from the National Institutes of Health for my entire career. You know, the NIH is the largest um, biomedical research institute and, and funding agency in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have uh, um, always felt that uh, the Dalai Lama has had deep scientific curiosity and that I've always felt it would be, you know, a gift for me if I can somehow um, benefit my colleagues at NIH to bring the Dalai Lama to the NIH campus to, to give a talk. Um, I just, you know, that was a fantasy of mine for a long time. And I tried about 15 years ago, you know, it didn't get very far. Apparently the state department quashed it. And um, several years ago, with the current director of NIH, who's still the director, who's an extraordinary person by the name of Francis Collins. He's an extremely eminent uh, molecular biologist who also happens to be a uh, an evangelical Christian. He's written a beautiful book about it. And, um, you know, he's also humble. Uh, and there are very, very few molecular biologists who are humble, in, in my experience. Uh, and so... Uh, I had the opportunity to meet Francis, and and I shared this, 
this vision that I had, and he was initially very skeptical. Uh, and then he asked me to send him links to see the Dalai Lama's talks at prestigious universities uh, to get a feel for, you know, what it is he talks about to these kinds of audiences. He also wanted to read carefully the serious scientific papers on meditation. So, you know, he did all his due diligence. Uh, and then he let me know uh, that he's in, that he'll he'll do it. And I told him about the previous um, time that we tried this and the State Department um, put a kibosh on it. And, um, and he was amazing and basically said in a very diplomatic way that he'd rather ask for forgiveness rather than permission. And he'll go ahead and do this. Uh, so the event actually happened. And uh, he called me several weeks before the event. And there was an hour before his talk where he was going to be on the NIH campus. And he simply asked me for some recommendations of mine of labs that he might wish to visit during his you know hour before. Um, because, you know, there are all these fancy labs on the NIH campus. And I said to him, you know, I, he's been around a lot of labs. He's seen lots of scanners. He's seen microscopes. I, I really didn't think he'd get very much out of going to a lab. But I know that there is a hospital on the NIH campus where very sick patients are being treated with experimental treatments. And I said I thought he would really enjoy meeting the patients. Um, and, and initially, Francis was quite incredulous that um, I was suggesting this. And we agreed finally that we'd split the time. Uh, so we'd devote a half hour to a visit in the hospital and a half hour to one lab that he chose. So I was there for this day, and they brought the patients to the doors of their rooms. And we walked down this long hospital corridor. This was a hospital corridor that at a normal walking pace would probably take you maybe 45 seconds or a minute to walk down. Um, you know, it's a typical hospital corridor. Uh, with hospital rooms on each side. And the Dalai Lama was there, and there may be 15 people in this entourage that included other NIH Institute directors, many famous people, some Nobel laureates. And the Dalai Lama went up to each patient. He held them. Uh, he asked them how they were doing. And I would say half the patients knew who he was, and the other half probably didn't know, and it didn't matter. And it took about 45 minutes to walk down this corridor that in a normal pace would take 45 seconds. Um, and he, he, you, we saw compassion in action. And this is the way he is all the time. Uh, and, um, you know, these are people who are suffering. And by the end of this 45 minutes, every person who was in this entourage had tears in their eyes. Uh, and this was just, um, you know, it, it was just an expression of compassion in action. I think that's a good place to, to end. That's a beautiful story. So let me ask you then the, the question we always ask to close the show, which is, what are three books you would recommend that have shaped the way you think that you think others could benefit from? Um, so uh, one book uh, that for me was really a very, very important book is actually the Dalai Lama's autobiography. Um, which is called Compassion in Exile. Um, and uh, uh, it is his story of uh, from when he was a child and, and actually found uh, and designated as a reincarnated Dalai Lama to modern times. Um, and uh, so 
Uh, for me, that was one, you know, really uh, extraordinarily important book. I would say another one, which I'm not expecting people to read, was um, William James's Principles of Psychology. Uh, I read that as a graduate student. The way he writes about the mind and his uh, introspective insight is visionary and uncanny and uh, poetic um, and uh, so deeply relevant to, to modern times. A third book is um, a very recent book, I'll, I'll name, which just came out literally this week. Uh, and it's called In Love with the World. Uh, and it is written by a young Tibetan Lama by the name of Mingyur Rinpoche. Uh, and he went off on a um, four and a half year wandering retreat in the Himalayas in the style that was that has not been done in, in the 20th or 21st centuries, but really was like a 18th and 19th century uh, kind of thing that was done in Tibet. And he almost died in the first part of the retreat. And um, uh, the book is part thriller um, uh, of sort of the days when he was um, he was almost dying. Uh, and there are gems of wisdom on every page um, uh, that are deeply meaningful for living a life of flourishing. And this is a, a book that I think is very, very special. Uh, and so it literally just came out. Let me ask you for one more before I let you go. If, if you've been listening to this show and you want to explore meditation because you haven't and you don't know all these typologies and you know, loving kindness and awareness and one-pointedness. Is there a book that you feel is a good guide, a good place to start to think about meditation and how to meditate? Well, I'll name two books, neither of which are mine. So this is not about self-promotion. Um, one is another book of Mingyur Rinpoche's called The Joy of Living, which I frankly feel is the very best book on meditation that is for the lay person, for the rank beginner, um, that I've ever read. Um, it's a fantastic book. Uh, the second book is uh, Dan Harris's 10% Happier. Uh, you know, I think that Dan's book will uh, appeal to certain kinds of people, and, you know, he's incredibly funny. Uh, you know, I think he makes it very accessible as well. Richie Davidson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you to Dr. Davidson for being here. Um, I, I want to add one book to the ones he mentioned. Uh, this is called The Mind Illuminated, A Complete Meditation Guide. And this is by John Yates and Matthew Immergut and Jeremy Graves. But it's a, I, I, it's a fascinating book. It's quite unlike any of the other books I've read on this topic. It is a much more systematic look at meditation than, than I've seen. And I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's the only one you should read. But I found that it was clarifying about how meditation might work and how you might think about sequencing the different things it can do in a way that is very relevant to the conversation with Richie Davidson that I just had and that it was certainly helpful for me and, and in some ways inspiring for me. Um, it was recommended to me by a lot of other people who are much better and much more learned in this space than I am. So I think some of you might enjoy it too. Um, thank you, of course, to Topher Ruth for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. 
It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 